Are you a Christian who finds yourself struggling with the same sin over and over again? Do you feel like your life doesn't seem to reflect the resurrection you know to be true? Have you tried dozens of books and techniques only to find yourself discouraged and ready to give up? Well, we've got good news for you. Questions like these inspired our journey into the rich biblical truths we call New Heart Theology. And we believe if you join us in this journey, we'll learn together, we'll wrestle together, and we'll strive together unto godliness. Welcome to the New Heart Theology Podcast, where we talk about, well, New Heart Theology and how that theology aids us in our battle against sin. I'm Kevin Lehman, and I'm a pastor and a biblical counselor in Wilmington, North Carolina. My co-host, Grant Forrester, is actually out this week, so I really hope you guys all enjoy monologues. But don't worry, given the fact that it is a monologue, I'm going to try to keep it shorter in light of being on my own. So what are we going to do with this episode? Well, I know we've been teasing an episode on anger for a while, and we thought this week was finally going to be the week where we would get that one out, but Grant really wants to be a part of that one. So what I'm going to do is postpone that one another couple of weeks until he returns, and I'm going to start a two-part series on idolatry. And so today's episode will be the first episode in that two-part series, and we will answer the question, is all sin idolatry? I hope you enjoy the show. Current evangelical Christian culture feels like it has fallen into this rut where every sin imaginable is rooted in idolatry. And not just idolatry, but this evolved spiritual idea of idolatry that lives in the heart. If you get angry at someone for pulling out in front of you, you worship control instead of God. If you look at pornography, you worship sex and pleasure instead of God. If you buy something outside your budget, you worship material possessions instead of God. If you fear what other people think of you, you worship people's approval instead of God. If you love your wife too much, you worship your wife instead of God. If you spend too much time at church, you worship your church instead of God. And it goes on and on. Dan Wickert writes in Counseling the Hard Cases, just as every sin is the fruit of unbelief, at the heart of every sin is an idol. If I believe a lie about God, then I am not worshiping him. Rather, I am belittling him, casting him from the throne of my heart. Man was designed for worship, so if I am not worshiping God, I am worshiping something else or someone else. So, according to Dan Wickert, At the heart of every sin is an idol. Powerless idols somehow have the capacity to cast Jesus from the throne of the believer's heart. I really don't even want to consider the implications of this being true. But he goes on to say that since a man was designed for worship, he must always be worshiping. Just like Michael Jordan was designed to play basketball, so he must always be playing basketball. Wait, that can't be right. When Actually, when you stop and consider it, it sounds crazy. Yet, so many Christian leaders today talk 
in these terms. And since they talk in these terms, it trickles down to everyone listening to them and pervades sermons, social media posts, books, and even prayers. And Wickert is not the only one by far. Ed Welch, whom I love in his book, Addiction, says, idolatry includes anything on which we set our affections and indulge as an excessive and sinful attachment. Idolatry includes anything we worship, the lust for pleasure, respect, love, power, control, or freedom from pain. Furthermore, the problem is not outside of us, located in a liquor store or on the internet. The problem is within us. Alcohol and drugs are essentially satisfiers of deeper idols. The problem is not with the idolatrous substance. It is the false worship of the heart. So even Ed Welch is attributing intangible thoughts and feelings to the sin of idolatry. And so anything we like too much must be an idol. Richard Mayhew echoes this thought. An idol is anything, any attitude, any belief, or any God that so captures a person's attention and allegiance that God does not have preeminence. Tim Keller says the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. The problem with this statement is that we know far too well by now that the mind is far more complicated than this statement. Our nine physical senses, and remember that's five external and four internal, are always processing information and constantly provoking different processes of the mind. Just because you're thinking of something does not at all necessitate that it is more important to you than God. But it's statements like this that get highlighted and promoted and shared. And they get shared because they sound contrite, but they're theologically and metaphysically inaccurate. Paul Tripp has a now famous line, a desire for a good thing becomes a desire for a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. He doesn't use the term idolatry here, but his books are full of the terminology. Tripp believes good things can become idolatry. Ken Sandy, again, another author I love, says this in The Peacemaker. It is important to emphasize the fact that idols can arise from good desires as well as wicked desires. It is often not what we want that is the problem, but that we want it too much. Randy Smith, in one of his sermons, said, If there is anything that thrills you, excites you, captivates you, stuns you more than God, you are an idolater. Does he really understand what he's saying? Has he stopped to consider how the Bible actually defines idolatry? That's kind of the point of this episode. What is idolatry? Is it really the root of every sin? Well, interestingly enough, the Greek word translated idolatry, eidololatria, only shows up four times in the New Testament. And three of those times... It's part of a list of sins. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh, the flesh, not the heart, not the spirit, but the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what is physical in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then Peter also writes in his first epistle, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, if this is three of the four places idolatry is used in the New Testament, and the other one just says flee from idolatry, I mean, if this is the New Testament's representation of idolatry, I'm thinking idolatry must be separate from all the other sins it's listed with. It cannot be a root sin if it's listed separately from most other sins. If idolatry were the root of all sins, why wouldn't the New Testament writers have specified so? Why wouldn't we have passages of scripture that teach everything is idolatry? And if we just deal with our idolatry, we'll be able to deal with all other sins. Perhaps that's not how the New Testament writers thought about idolatry. And so neither should we. And then even considering the word eidolon, the word translated as idol, it only shows up 11 times in the New Testament. And I want to look at one of these passages in particular. I want to look specifically at Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? A fairly common problem that Paul has to address in his letters to the first century church is whether or not they can eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't have time to explore this particular issue today, but there's a good answer that we can cover at another time. But in this passage, Paul is again addressing the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. But what I want you to focus on is in verse 19 and following. He says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
Paul is saying here that the actual idol itself has no value. It's not even really a thing. It has no existence. The idols themselves have no power, no control, and should not be personified. His concern, however, is what the idols represent, demons or false gods. Robertson and Plummer, in their commentary on 1 Corinthians, write, The apostle is showing that taking part in the sacrificial feasts of the heathen involves two evils, sharing in the worship of a thing of naught, the idol, and what is still worse, having fellowship with demons. F.F. Bruce says, Paul is thinking of feasts which are explicitly under the patronage of a pagan deity, involving in some degree the acknowledgement and even worship of that deity. So Bruce is confirming that the worship of a deity is tied to the New Testament understanding of idolatry. And let's do one more for fun. Robert Gramacki writes in his expositional commentary, although idols actually do not exist, demons use men's affinity to worship idols to get worship for themselves. Unsaved men, totally deceived and blinded spiritually, are unaware that they are actually fellowshipping with the world of evil spirits. And so in the sin of idolatry, it is not so much about the idol as it is the demon worship that is taking place as a result. What I believe we have done in our current idols of the heart culture is flipped this. We've given all the power to the idol. The idol is dethroning Jesus from our heart. The idol is climbing the stairway of our heart's desire. And yes, I've seen this diagram many times. Ed Welch, in one of my otherwise favorite books, which will remain nameless, says, either we will love and serve God or we will love and serve our idols. Idols exist in our lives because we love them and invite them in. But once idols find a home, they are unruly and resist leaving. In fact, they change from being the servants of our desires to being our masters. Do you see how he has personified the spiritual idols? He has given them power. And so many Christian authors, preachers, and counselors are unwittingly doing the same thing. By giving all the power to the idol, we've removed the supernatural aspect of true idolatry and possibly even materialized scripture by discounting the worship of demons in idolatry. We have cheapened what idolatry actually is. A few weeks ago, I got to have a really good conversation with a pastor down in Georgia. His name's Dr. Carlton Wynn, and he recognized this issue over a decade ago and wrote an article titled, Is Idolatry the New Sin? And he gives us in this article three well-searched features of biblical idolatry. For the first one, he says, idols were personal agents. Tangible idols depicted regional deities who, in the eyes of their worshipers, were dynamic, volitional, and real. Modern preaching on idolatry discounts the personhood of biblical idols when it floods the category of idolatry with all sorts of abstract principles and goals, ideologies, and emotional states. He goes on to say, second... And flowing from their personhood, idols were thought to possess inherent power. 
The God-infused idol could secure wartime victory, witness vows, and protect its devotees from harm. Though preachers tout the seductive power of idols of the heart, when personal objects and abstractions become idols, the notion of inherent power featured in scriptural examples of idolatry is lost. And thirdly, Dr. Wynn says that idols were the objects of worship. They received sacrifices and blessed supplicants according to their perceived strength. The act of worship, which lay at the heart of biblical examples of idolatry, mocked the supremacy and worthiness of God. He goes on to write, Do modern so-called idols, including any hobby, relationship, or desire, similarly challenge God by receiving genuine worship? Do the cultic practices of idolaters in Scripture orient their worship to a breadth of types of idols that include anything under the sun? Leaving aside rhetorical finesse and metaphorical zingers, effective as they may be, does one really sacrifice his children to the idol of corporate success? Can one offer genuine worship to the desire for marriage? How does one go about worshiping a desire in any biblical sense? God intimately knows everyone's desires, whether sinful or pure, but never identifies them as idols. Idolatry, true idolatry, is a vile and quite dangerous sin to tamper with. It opens up connections to spiritual realms that most of us have never encountered. Idolatry deals with accessing, worshiping, or being a conduit for demons. Idolatry has ties to witchcraft, Eastern religions, Satan worship, and necromancy. The BDAG says of idolatry in reference to 1 Peter 4.3 that it is lawless deeds committed in connection with polytheistic worship. As we have said, idolatry in scripture is always worshiping an object believed to be a conduit for a fallen or false god, or of course, directly worshiping the fallen or false god. Acts 17.16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now listen, Paul wasn't walking into Athens and was like, Oh no, that man loves his children too much. Oh no, that woman there with the fine pottery, clearly she has fallen to the idol of hard work. He didn't go into the market and say, These people love money so much that it has become an idol. No, he was taking note of actual idols that were being used to worship demons. You see, it was never about the tangible objects. It was always about the demons that they were actively worshiping. Desiring something sinful or more so than God in a fleeting moment of temptation does not mean you love that desire or worship that desire more than God. God says when he gives us a new heart, we will love him with all of it. This doesn't change in the throes of desire. My children have always loved their mother dearly, but that doesn't mean they've never desired to disobey her. It doesn't mean that they haven't desired a cookie before dinner and snuck one from the pantry. Does that mean my child at one point in her life actually loved cookies more than her mother? Of course not. That's a crazy proposition. 
They don't stop loving her or love her less because they are tempted to disobey her. And let's get a little more real. And I'm probably going to get in trouble from someone for saying this, but a man desiring another woman in a battle with temptation does not mean that man loves that woman more than he loves his wife. It doesn't mean that he loves that woman, period. It means his brain is reacting to what he sees and is sending desire impulses throughout his body. Acting on those impulses is absolutely sinful, but it rarely has anything to do with love and certainly not with worship. Many men love their wives dearly, but lack the skill and training to control their desires. But self-control and love are two very different character traits. And so in the same way, you can love God dearly, but still have desires to sin against him. It doesn't change your love for him. It just means you're dealing with the wretchedness of your body. Desiring something and even succumbing to that desire is very different from loving that thing from the heart. Now, I'm not here to say idolatry doesn't exist. Of course it exists. The Bible says it exists. But I want to make sure we are properly distinguishing between the person who is actually committing idolatry as defined above and saying someone has idols in their heart. Believers don't have idols in their hearts. Based on what we've discussed here today, I'm not even sure intangible idols exist, period. Show me one in scripture. And we've covered Ezekiel 12 in other episodes, by the way. But what's the big deal, you might ask? I'm going to give you two big issues with using idols of the heart language when referring to a believer, and then we'll close for now. First, heart idolatry seems to imply a problem with the spiritual part of us. But the Bible says we've been given a new heart that is washed clean, regenerated, and sealed by the Spirit. We have become temples of God. And so Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Believers don't have idols in their new regenerated hearts. Second, from a counseling perspective, the whole idea of heart idolatry is a circular fallacy that ends in frustration and discouragement for many that we counsel. And here's what it says. The heart is the human faculty that is capable of fully loving God. But the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Therefore, the heart cannot fully love God. But the solution to your sin problem is make your heart fully love God. They say the heart cannot fully love God, but their solution to sin is that the heart must fully love God. They can't both hold at the same time that the heart is desperately wicked, but also that the heart needs to fully love God. That does nothing but present to our counselees an impossible task. This fallacy provides them the solution, but the theology of the fallacy dictates that the solution is unattainable until after death. What we're offering at NHT is a viable and even encouraging way to understand why we still battle with sin. God has given us new hearts, but we still live in a wretched body of death that, as Paul Washer says, is still ingrained with habits of sin. 
And for more information on this, I would encourage you to listen to episodes three through nine, where we give robust summaries of each of our key doctrines. Okay, I suppose that will do it for this episode. Next week, I'll engage with the question, can we worship something by accident as kind of a follow up to today's show? I want to know if we can worship an object or deity without knowing it given that worship is a very specific and engaged action. We really do appreciate the support. If you enjoy our content and want to help us get it to more people, a few things you can do to help are leaving an honest five-star review, subscribing to the show, and telling a friend about us. We also have a new Instagram page, which can be found at New Heart Theology. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter. I love hearing from you guys and gals. My handle on both is at Kevin Lehman. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and God bless.